Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Hey, everybody, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. On today's show, How the West Was Won by Democrats. LA Times political columnist Mark Baraback joins us to talk about how states like Arizona, Nevada, Nevada, and Colorado shifted from red to blue, or at least purple in the last two decades. Yeah, the states have become key to Democrats winning control of the U.S. Senate and keeping Donald Trump from winning a second term in 2020. Mark joins us to talk about the series, which examined six states, including California, which now, of course, is as reliably Democratic as any state. But and not all its congressional districts are. Oh, they're not. Nice transition. <laughs> yes, you go down to Kern County, very deep red. Kevin McCarthy leaving that job in the 23rd Congressional District early. And orderly transition, handpicked candidate to replace him, not so much. We've got David Giglio, who had been running a big MAGA Republican. And then the succession plan maybe has kind of hit the rocks. Well, I mean, he kind of mic dropped this whole thing, right? I feel like he was like, I'm out of here, guys. Uh, good luck. Good luck right? with your three-vote majority. Yeah. So maybe it's not that surprising. I think a lot of us had expe- expected Shannon Grove to jump in, longtime uh, politician from that region. Um, she did not. She decided not to. But we have seen Assemblymember Vince Fong and he kind of is stuck now in the sticky wicket of a political or a legal situation. Yeah, so he was uh, McCarthy's district director. He's been endorsed by uh, Kevin McCarthy, but the problem is he's also, you know, he didn't know that this was going to come up. So he's filed and he's on the ballot in March to run for re-election to his assembly seat, and. You know, you, the Secretary of State, Shirley Weber, says you can't be on the ballot twice. You can't be running for both Assembly and for Congress. And she, it's going to be hard for him to get his name off. It's going to go to the courts. Right. Uh, and his opponent has already sued to keep him off. Yeah. I think, you know, I, I'm not a lawyer. I didn't write election law. It seems like not totally unreasonable to because this was all such a weird thing. And we have seen in other races closer to home, for example, out in Alameda, where there was sort of another surprise late decision by a supervisor not to run for re-election, that they did allow folks to have an extended deadline to yeah, file. And that's part of the law, that if somebody, if an incumbent decides not to run, you give people an extra time to go beyond the filing deadline. And, you know, that kind of implies that you might have been running for something else and now you want to run. So it does imply yeah. that you should be able to switch. The courts will decide what, uh, we'll what see. happens I, I there. wouldn't expect like an emergency order from our Democratic-led legislature <laughs> and uh, governor. Not much help from, uh, from the attorney general either. But- we yeah. will be seeing Democrat on Democrat violence down in the South. <laughs> well, let's not say violence. But uh, yeah, Anna Eshoo, uh, who uh, is also retiring after 30 years in Washington, um, represents the Palo Alto area down the peninsula south of San Francisco. 
And that's going to be a really interesting race. you got Sam Licardo, the fam- former mayor of San Jose, running. Joe Simidian, who has represented that area for many years in the legislature and on the county board of soups. And then you got Evan Lowe, who is the, you know, very, was a very, I think the youngest mayor ever of Campbell. Now he's in the assembly, openly gay, Asian. And then you've got some other folks as well who are, who are in that race, including um, uh, Rishi Kumar, who got 42% of the mm-hmm. vote against Anna Eshoo, which is kind of a anybody but Eshoo vote, I guess. But nonetheless, it's going to be very robust. Yeah. I mean, it does seem like Licardo has like the sort of infrastructure set up. We've seen him pick up Eric J, pretty well-known San Francisco political consultant. He put out some impressive fundraising numbers for the first few days. But to your point, I mean, Samidian has been a player down there for decades, very well-known. I think Evan Lowe, you know, he's only 40 years old. His age, his sort of demeanor, I think, could excite people. Um, and then Licardo is obviously very well known in San Jose, was the mayor, also pretty young, you know, 53. So it's, I think it, this is one of those ones where um, I didn't mean real violence, guys. I just meant a little, <laughs> little healthy political debate. Um, but, you know, it's like th- this is sort of what, even with our redistricting and, you know, just the, the reality of the way people have chosen to sort of sort themselves means that even in a state like California, you do have districts like in Kern County that is pretty reliably red and here where it's basically just going to be all these Democrats. Yeah, although a Republican could jump in if there's like five Democrats splitting the vote, you know, it could Mm -hmm. be a Republican versus the top Democrat. And and I'd be remiss not to mention that Julie Lithcott Hames, uh, who's on the Palo Alto City Council, is also running the only prominent woman in the race. And, Mm -hmm. you know, she's not even that prominent, but she has time to get uh, her name out there. And it is interesting. uh, Politico ran a piece about this today that, you know, California used to be the, you know, it was the year of the woman. We had two women senators. The Bay Area delegation was chock full of women, including, of course, Nancy Pelosi, Jackie Spear, Barbara Lee, and many others. And, you know, we're really, it's really, uh, the generational shift is also turning into a gender shift. Yeah, that's, that is fascinating. I mean, I do think, though, like, that's one thing I'll be watching is how much does the age of candidates, the generational kind of argument play into a race like that? Because what you see happening, you know, obviously in the U.S. Senate race, the sort of long goodbye of former Senator Dianne Feinstein, is a lot of, I think, pressure and excitement from younger voters to see a new generation. And I think you're really going to see that play out in the issue seat where you, right. like, as you mentioned, Simidian, Joe Simidian, 70, yeah. he's older, you know, it's going to be experience versus, you know, vigor and youth and identity, you know, racial identity, gender identity, all those things. So we will certainly be keeping an eye on that. All right, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we'll be joined by LA Times columnist Mark Barabek, whose series The New West examines how Democrats gained ground in formerly red states like Colorado, Nevada, and Arizona. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse, golden state. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. 
And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. And today we're happy to have with us a veteran of covering California politics, L.A. Times columnist Mark Baraback. For the past six months, he's been traveling throughout the West, chronicling how states that were not that long ago reliably Republican, like Colorado and Arizona, have become, if not deep blue, at least very winnable for Democrats, battlegrounds. The series is called The New West. Mark Baraback, welcome to The Breakdown. Back to the breakdown, I think. Thanks for having me. Vera, back to the breakdown. Yeah, exactly. Thanks nice for to me. see <laughs> you. So, uh, you know, big picture question. Uh, six months of traveling to very nice states. Yeah. What made you think of doing this series? Well, I've done this, as you suggest, you said veteran, which is a kind of nice way of saying old guy. Um, I, I, I've done a dozen presidential campaigns, and, and the origin goes back actually to 2004 when I remembered being in the Portland suburbs when George W. Bush was campaigning, and no one at the time thought, what, what is Bush doing in Oregon? He's, this is crazy. In mm-hmm. fact, I realized in the course of reporting, Portland was actually the top or one of the top advertising markets in that election cycle, just to show how things have changed in, in just 20 years. And the other thing is, I've, I've, I've written a a lot and I've written a lot of dumb things, which anyone who Googles will find soon enough. But when I get something right, I'll take credit. So in, in April of 2005, I, I did a piece out of Colorado. The headline of it was Democrats Push for a New Frontier. And Democrats had managed to win a Senate seat in Colorado and they flipped the House seat. And they really did very well across the whole region. And folks forget that one of the reasons Democrats put their 2008 convention in, in Colorado, in Denver, was this idea that the West held out promise. So I just started thinking back to those things and how much it changed. And I, I started the series in, in Colorado because it, it had the largest swing. It was a state that W. Bush won by five points, Biden won it by 13, 18 point swing. So it really goes back, as I said, to the 2004 campaign and thinking back to just how much things have changed in those 20 years. I mean, a lot of the sort of broader narrative and I think assumptions people would make is that this is all about Democrats fleeing California. Um, but yeah. in fact, California is one of the states that really, if not flipped, like has just gone more and more towards Democrats. How much is sort of population changes, people moving around? How much of that story is this story? That's a part of it. Uh, I don't want to overstate it. I mean, it's certainly part of it. You know, Colorado, for example, you know, gained about a million and a half residents in, in the last 20 years. That, that, that's a lot of people on a percentage base. Not all of them from California, but yes, that is definitely a part. You you, you have a lot of Californians who have uh, brought their uh, political... Their crazy leanings. liberal. Yeah, ex- exactly. Don't California my fill in the blank. But a lot yeah. of them, you know, it, they've come to Nevada. They, they've come to Arizona. They've gone to Colorado. I think that's a part of it, but I, I don't think that's it entirely. I think there's a lot more to it than just that. But that's a part. 
Well, and to that question, uh, what is the through line? If it's not, uh, it can't be just Trump because this has happened over 20 years, can't just be migration of Californians. So what, are there things that link these six or many states together? Lines, yeah, yeah there, there, there are some, some commonalities. Um, I think even before Trump, we saw a Republican Party that was turning rightward. It became more and more of a Christian Southern party, if you will. Trump was an accelerant to, to that trend. Um, the growing influence of Latinos. I mean, it really started here in California with, with Prop 187. Uh, Arizona had its iteration of that. SB 1070 was called. Um, in uh, New Mexico, on a percentage basis, Latinos are, are, are growing an increasingly important part and a large part of the electorate. So that, and then and then also you have uh, the suburbs. A huge part of it is is suburbs, which again, this, this kind of goes back to uh, the Republican Party going right and alienating a lot of independents, a lot of suburban voters. But that, that's a through line, whether you're talking about the suburbs of Denver or Arizona or Nevada. So are these states like sort of is this baked in at this point? Like before we get into some of the details of them, because I think to your point, like looking back at my almost 20 years covering politics, it's so funny how like the the sort of common wisdom change, conventional yep. wisdom. Right. Yeah. I mean, the fact that we have a state like Georgia in play now was not the case 20 years ago. Right. Um, and yet. I think at this point, a lot of these states are seen as very reliably blue. Yeah, you know, I hesitate to say anything is ever baked in. I mean, one of the, one of the one of the fun facts that I, I discovered or, or recollected in this series, and, and this is kind of a mind blower for people who follow politics, is in, in in 1988, the liberal, by his own description, the Massachusetts liberal Michael Dukakis, won West Virginia and lost California. So get wow. your mind around that. I mean, so, you know, things change. I mean, I've done this long enough. I remember when a place like Missouri, which is very, very red now, was a battleground. Uh, when places like um, Virginia, North Carolina, Georgia, all these were very, very red states. Mm-hmm. Democrats didn't have a prayer. And part of what, what what's interesting, and, and I did cheat a little, if you will. I mean, I, I extended the, the, the time frame a few years to take in California because, well, you know, it's the LA Times, and I think California is a huge part of it. Um, <laughs> and just a slightly large state. Yeah, we know. went, you know, I went back to 92, and it's funny, when, when that piece ran, I happened to be back in Washington, D.C., where one of my daughters was living at the time, and I had to say, to her, well, well, hon, you know, once upon a time, California was a really, really red state. And when Bill Clinton won it, it was it was a huge deal. It was seen as a bit of a fluke. He won with 46% of, of, of the vote. And and this kind of goes back to what I was saying about how, how things change. I mean, think how significant it is that Democrats aren't spending tens, many, many tens of millions of dollars competing in California. It gave them the money to compete in Virginia, to compete in North Carolina, all these places that once seemed like way far out of reach. Well, and on the flip side of that, Republicans really won't sink any money into it because it's sending good money after bad. Yeah, exactly. And and I just had a, a follow-up. It was kind of, to my mind, putting a bow on this whole thing. I did a piece on Texas, you know, asking, you know, all these things that we talked about, a very, very Trumpy Republican Party, suburbs going from red to blue, huge Latino uh, population growth, and yet Texas has not flipped in that way. And it's sort of the flip side of California. It's like, you know, Democrats look at it and it's like, it's a ton of money to sink in that place, you know, not very competitive. And they, they don't, they've written it off in the way Republicans have written off California. California. So really, really hard to see how that's going to turn around. Well, I got to say, um, and now I'm going to date myself okay. because I uh-huh. was not a voter, let's just say, when Bill Clinton was elected. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, and a lot of the narrative, and it's one we've sort of promoted here, is is that a lot of California's blue word democratic drift actually came out of Pete Wilson and Proposition 184 and this kind of anti-immigrant hardline yeah. rhetoric. That, I don't think that's untrue, but it was fascinating to me how much 
you, you know, your account of how much Bill Clinton specifically really, you know, put attention, money into California and then also brought staff back to D.C. Can you just talk about that a little bit? And like at the time, did people think he was crazy? Um, you know, actually, actually, I'm, I'm glad I took my Geritol this morning. Um, so, <laughs> um, you yeah, look you know, marvelous. <laughs> so there is, there is, and, and there's truth to it. I mean, there is truth. And it's really funny. I didn't want to write the 10 zillion kabillionth iteration of Prop 187, Latinos, Pete Wilson, blah, blah, blah. Yes, that I was. I said 184. 187. Yeah. Very, very significant. But, you know, there was a very conscious effort. In fact, the piece opened, that particular piece opened with a, a at the time, secret memo that I got my hands on that uh, Bill Clinton received from his political folks before he even took office, saying basically, if you want to get reelected, now mind you, he hadn't even been sworn in yet, but they're saying, if you want to be reelected in 1996, you need to nail down California. So he set out very, very deliberately. And it's interesting, Clinton um, had a feel for the state. He loved California, loved coming to California. In fact, he came to California more than any state during his presidency other than Maryland, where Camp David is located, New York, where he ended up moving to. But again, a very, very conscious effort. As as, as Marisa said, he um, brought Brought California's back in his cabinet. And if you go back, you know, for a long, long time, California, in fact, I, I, I'm not going to take credit for it, but when I was a political writer at the San Francisco Chronicle, um, there was these newfangled things called ATM machines. And I referred to California as the ATM of American <laughs> politics. Uh, which it was. And, and folks would come here, folks would come here, and they wouldn't give California Democrats the time of day. All that changed when Bill Clinton came. I interviewed uh, Bob Mulholland, who will be familiar to a lot of your listeners, who said, you know what? Phone calls, pictures, invitations to the White House. But it was also, as, as Marisa said, putting Californians in his cabinet, making California a huge priority, spending a ton of money negotiating things like trade deals so California rice could be sold in Japan, you know, spending a lot of money to clean up uh, sewage that was flowing from Tijuana into beaches in San Diego. It was a lot of care. It was a lot of feeding. And it paid off. Bill Clinton put California away, and it hasn't been competitive since. At the same time, there was this was the repercussions of Prop 187, Exactly, right? exactly. And, and to what extent do you think Democrats were very much aware of that? I mean, we're aware of it now, looking back at it. But a lot of Latinos kind of got the bug for politics. They got involved in politics politics after or during Prop 187. Did, was that a deliberate thing on the part of the Dems to take advantage of that? I, you know, it's interesting. I don't know how, I mean, certainly Democrats did what they could um, to foster that change and bring about that change. I think a lot of that change was brought about, frankly, within the Latino community. Folks were just catalyzed. They were energized. They were uh, ticked off. I don't know if well, I Well, and a lot of word. the people leading the state now with that profile were in high school and they were sort of uh, yes. I don't know if radicalized is the right word. Because but that, they, they're they're not, political, they're, yes, yeah. their, their political consciousness came about as, as a result of yeah. that. So it, it very much catalyzed those folks. So I think Democrats took advantage of it. But I think a lot of it, like I said, just came just came from, from the bottom up. What about, let's talk about Oregon. Okay. I mean, fascinating, just like these statistics. 2000 Al Gore beats Bush by like a couple hundred votes, Super, essentially. Very, yeah, very, very close. Uh, Biden won by 17 points. So, um I don't think in Oregon, at least, the Latino population is not the big player. What no. happened there? Well, that was interesting because there was I quoted a, a fellow who's an emeritus professor by the name of Bill Lunch, who, who said employment patterns have political consequences, which they do. And they did. 
And in the case of Oregon, it was an economic transformation. When you think about Oregon, uh, you think about, well, once upon a time, uh, big extractive industries, chopping down trees, uh, lumber. You know, the industry went through a lot, of, a lot of change, and I didn't really go into that history. But the bottom line is the economy changed, and people stopped seeing forests as places to chop down, and instead as places to um, cross-country ski and ride their bikes through and stuff. And so, you be, you know, as, as the economy shifted, it became very much uh, built around uh, high-tech which drew in a lot of folks. Education became very, very important, and I don't want to get too much in the weeds, but I mentioned um, for various reasons, Democrats came to be seen as a better party when it came to education. They were certainly seen as a better party when it came to the environment. And, and so those economic changes led to attract a lot of people, including many from California, some of whom I interviewed for that piece, but folks who were very environmental-minded, who were very education-minded, and saw Democrats as the better choice. And there again, Lastly, you know, you had a, a very long tradition of moderate republicanism, Bob Packwood, Mark Hatfield. You had a turn very far to the right by Republicans up there, and that alienated a lot of folks, too. I remember the first time I visited Oregon, there were all these bumper stickers. And this is dating myself now, 1980, right after Mount St. Helens blew. And there were bumper stickers that said, don't Californicate Oregon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Tom McCall, I think, was the governor famously said, you know, you know, come and, and visit and and, and spend Please. your money, but don't, but, stick but, but don't stay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but don't stay. Now Montana has those, yeah. I think. Yeah, exactly. A lot of these states, Mark, have uh, bigger-than-life people, uh, yeah. some Republican like John McCain in yeah. Arizona, um, and then in Nevada, Harry Reid, yeah. who, of course, was a legendary uh, senator there. Talk about the role that he played in helping to flip that state. And I think we have to say it's very much purple now. It's not blue. Yeah, Harry Reid, I mean, uh, I talked earlier about sort of these broad uh, uh, factors, uh, the suburbs, Latinos. And then, as you suggest, there were there were individuals who played key roles. We talked about Bill Clinton and his role in California. Harry Reid was indispensable. And, and it very much was a, a mother of necessity kind of thing. I mean, Harry Reid, he was he was he was a, a, a fascinating character. I had the opportunity to interview him a few times and, and, and uh, cover him. Super smart, um, super controversial, very divisive. People either loved or, or hated Harry Reid. And had a whole history of elections. He won. He won two elections by less than a thousand votes, and so he set out to make sure he was looking at a really, really tough re-election campaign. In I think it was in, in 2004, 2010. But the bottom line, he was looking at another super tough uh, re-election campaign, and so he set out to build the Republican, the Democratic Party. Once upon a time in Nevada was was, was kind of a joke. You know, it was a lot of you know folks sitting around telling tales from the day back when. It was more like a coffee clutch, if you will. You know, now I would say it's probably one of the most formidable Democratic political operations in, in the country. And Harry Reid built that up and very consciously did so to benefit his reelection. Um, the 2008 Nevada caucuses came um, came out west thanks to Harry Reid, and then also indispensable to that was a culinary union. I mean, Nevada, yeah. uh, Vegas is is. It, it, Really, an interesting place and somewhat of an anomaly in America. I think it's it's the one place in America still where someone with a high school education can get a job that will let them buy a house, put their kids through college. So, culinary, sixty thousand members, um, an absolutely indispensable. It is not a part of the Democratic uh, Party, but an it indispensable well part. Yeah, yeah, an indispensable partner when it comes to election and getting folks to turn out. And again, Harry Reid and culinary. I mean, if there is a a, a recipe, it's Harry Reid plus culinary equals Democratic wins. 
Jones. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. We are talking to LA Times political columnist Mark Baraback about his series, The New West, all about political changes in the South and Southwest. This is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information about how to support KQED, go to kqed.org slash donate. I wonder, uh, switching to another state, Colorado, I mean, there's a sense of, you know, the West. I I do think for all of our blueness now, there's like a libertarian sort of streak out West, right? I mean, starting from our beginnings as, you know, with the the gold rush and everything. And you talk about how Democrats in Colorado have really branded themselves as centrist. Um, And I'm curious, like understanding that every state is different as we just spoke about Nevada. Like you couldn't take that playbook in Nevada and move it to one of these other states. But are there lessons from the way that, especially with the sort of magification of, of the Republican party, what, what could, you know, somebody in a different state take from Colorado in terms of that sort of approach? Well, it's, as you said, as the Republican Party in Colorado, they, they just uh, uh, elected an election denier as, as the Republican Party chairman. So, again, a part of this gotten very, very MAGA, very, very Trumpy. Um, you have people like Jared Polis, who in some ways folks suggest he's kind of more libertarian than, than Democratic. He's the current governor. You have um, uh, John Hickenlooper, the senator, you know, former oil and gas guy. Uh, the uh, governor before Hickenlooper was uh, Bill Ritter, a district attorney. So Democrats very, very consciously, as you said, tried to center themselves and come across as, you know, there, there was a quote, there was someone who, who said to me, you know, Colorado's not Maryland, meaning, you know, whether it's it's Marisa or Scott or Donald Duck with the D behind their name, you'll get elected. Colorado's not that kind of place. I think it's it's getting easier for a Democrat to be, to be elected there. But for a long time, it was only a certain kind of Democrat who would be elected. And those are the kind of Democrats, excuse me, yeah, those are the kind of centrists the Democrats were putting up. We mentioned in California and maybe in Arizona that immigration was a big issue, the igniting of the Latino electorate. What about in Colorado I mean, or, or Nevada or New Mexico, which we haven't talked about yet? Yeah, Colorado. Yeah, all those states, all those states, to 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 a lesser extent, only only on on a population basis. But yes, there is a increasingly important and and meaningful Latino vote. In fact, it, it's interesting. I mean, I've written a lot about the Latino vote going back to Prop One Eighty Seven. You know, places that you don't think about. Georgia, um, New Jersey, Illinois, all states, of course, Florida, um, Texas, all these states have have very significant and very meaningful uh, uh, Latino populations. Now, to go back to Texas for a minute, in, in Texas, they prefer Hispanic. Hispanics, they're tending more conservative than, say, Latinos in California or places like Colorado and Nevada. But Democrats definitely benefited from that effect. And as I mentioned, very specifically in, in Arizona, I, I talked to a lot of folks who, as, as Marisa was talking earlier about people in California, a lot of folks in, in Arizona uh, who are now Democrats, who are now active, came of age under SB 10, which critics call the show me your paper law, ended up, show me your papers law, ended up being thrown out in court. But, but uh, a big incentive. Center for Democrats and Sheriff Joe Arpaio. And, and was yes, a big deal yes, there. and Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Yes, of course, not to not to be forgotten. So, then why not somewhere like Texas, where you have someone like Abbott, who is you know shipping migrants to Martha's Vineyard? Wait, was that him or? DeSantis, I'm DeSantis, but no, yeah, but, you know, same, same, Abbott put him on a bus and send recovery. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Good question. And and I, I like I said, I wanted to kind of wrap up the series, you know, in Texas. And and I realize it's interesting because it's it's almost like a theological question: Is, is Texas a Western, western state, state or southern state? And it kind of depends. Southwest. I mean, West Texas is Western. East Texas is Southern. Settled by a lot of people from yeah. Alabama. It was yeah. a part of the Confederacy. It was a slave owning state. You have that whole history there. And I'm very very mindful of it. But if I, if I boiled it down, there were sort of three 
uh, components. There's a lot, obviously, but you know, this is this is journalism, so we'll simplify. <laughs> um, size, size matters. I mean, Texas is huge, and and this is something I learned. I mean, I I, know, I knew Texas was big. I didn't realize Texas is half as big again as California, right? Texas is two hundred fifty thousand. Yeah, two hundred fifty thousand square miles. California is one hundred sixty. I mean, Texas is huge. Texas is huge. Texas is expensive. And as someone told me when I, when I did the piece, you know, 20 media markets, if you want to be successful as a Democrat or really any strategy, you go in, you know, you buy Las Vegas. I'm talking about the advertising market. You know, you buy uh, uh, Phoenix and you cover a vast a bulk of, of the electorate. You can't do that in Texas. So super expensive. Um, and Latinos there, and there's all sorts of different theories on why. Latinos in California, and I have some data, I quoted a, a pollster who's done work in both places, and just demonstrably, if you ask them ideology, Latinos in California more liberal than Hispanics in Texas, Hispanics in Texas more conservative than, than in California. So you have that piece of it, and so Democrats haven't got the same sort of benefit, if you will, from the burgeoning population. And then last but not least, and I think Perhaps the most significant thing is, is, is sort of this self-perpetuating cycle. As I said earlier, Texas, super, super expensive, right? So Democrats don't invest. They don't invest, they lose. They lose. Why should we invest? We're yeah, losing, right? Yeah. So it's just this. It's kind of like this. 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 This doom. There. There's a. There's a concept. It's a doom loop. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what you think the impact of Trump has been, because a state like Arizona, there. You know, he, he was never that popular in yeah. Arizona. Not that popular in Utah either, for that matter. Right. But uh, you know, Carrie Lake, who was a big election denier, uh, lost uh, the race for governor. Now she's, I think, running for the. She's running for the Senate. I mean, to what extent do you think the purpleization of uh, Arizona is a temporary thing that will go away or at least revert a little bit backwards when he's gone? That's a really good question. And and, and, and not to dodge it, but you know, we'll know in 2024. It's a really good question. I mean, Joe Biden won Arizona by 11,000 votes out of, I, I think, 3 million. I can't do it off the top of my head. But So when you're talking about that, you, you could point to any number. You know, you could talk to you know the, the cloud patterns over the state on that, right? They, any number of factors. <laughs> but I will say, I think what is significant, and we were talking about where one individual makes a difference in California was Clinton. In Nevada, it was Harry Reid. I think in, in, in Arizona, it was Cindy McCain, the mm -hmm. widow of. Um, McCain and Biden were personally very, very close. And she came out and she endorsed him. And she didn't just, you know, okay, I'm going to vote for Joe. She had a TV, cut a TV ad. And a lot of folks I talked to thought that, I mean, again, 11,000 votes, it's hard to ascribe to any one factor, but a lot of people thought that Cindy McCain's endorsement was really, really hugely well, significant. Well, in a state where, like, are not a third of voters independent? I mean, it's, like, pretty evenly yeah, split. Yeah, and, and a lot of people thought it was kind of like a permission slip. It was like, mm -hmm. you know what? You know what, conservative? You know what, Republican? You don't like Donald Trump? I don't either. Cindy McCain, I'm, I'm channeling Cindy McCain here. <laughs> you know, it's okay. It's okay to vote for Joe Biden. A lot of people thought that was really, really significant, and that might have been what put Biden barely yeah. over the top. Well, and of course, it was very personal, too, because of the things that uh, Trump said about her husband. Yes, it was. All right, Mark Baraback. The series is called The New West. It's in the LA Times. You'll find it online. Mark, thanks so much for coming in. It was fun. Thanks for having me. And that'll do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineer today is Christopher Beal. Our producer is Izzy Bloom. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. We'll see you next time, everybody.
Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast.